been learning a lot from God's Word, thanks to our guest speakers, um, as we've been working our way through this series on God's heart for the world. When I was up here last night, oh, last night, it was not last night, <laughs> last month we talked about the book of Jonah. Um, that st- the story of that prophet's rebellion is a prime example of someone who they didn't really truly know what it means to love others as God loves them. We're going to continue that topic for God's heart for the world, but before we do so, let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you will uh, be honored and glorified through our time together looking to your word, that you will uh, take, take the words that I've prepared and um, speak through them, and if it is what you would have me not say, God, I pray that you will, um, that you will change that, that you will speak to what is needed today. Amen. So last time I boiled down to one phrase, something that I challenged you to write down that you'd remember. Okay, show of hands, did anyone write down that small theology 101 statement? We said multiple times last time. Okay, you all are getting better. Okay, cool. Now, do you know where it is still? You know what? See, if you had passed, I would say that you get to go through the snack line first, because that's why I say at youth group. But let's be fair, the, the kids would probably get there first. For the rest of you, let's, let's jog our memories a little bit, okay? I, I will make you do laps, like if you don't wake up, okay? Help me out here. Okay, so we're going to jog our memory. We know that Scripture is useful for teaching and training in righteousness, yes? All right, so that's what we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. We trust that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, like it says in John 3.16, right? Okay. And we can see evidence of that in the book of Jonah, where God extended mercy and love to both the sailors and the people of Nineveh, right? Okay. So a fair conclusion, then, is that if your study of theology results in loving God, but not all people, you might be loving just the idea of God. It is clear through Scripture that God loves the world. We need to emulate that. This morning, we're going to look at a few more examples from Scripture that further demonstrate this core theological truth. And just like with Jonah, we are going to see how expansive, how far-reaching God's love is. We're going to see how he is more than willing to draw outsiders into his story, a story that is not limited by culture, by values, gender, morals, or anything else that we might assume to be barriers to entry, God's not limited by. So we're first going to look at the book of Joshua. We're going to start with chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So go ahead and turn there. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun set two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. 
Pursue them quickly. You'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab, oh Rahab. Rahab is a pretty famous individual from the Bible, or rather she's pretty infamous. Why? Well, for a very simple reason. She was a prostitute. I do really mean that she's infamous. Many throughout history have tried to gloss over this profession because it makes us uncomfortable. Okay? More than just her moral failings, though, I think this discomfort stems from us having a hard time accepting that someone like Rahab could be used by God. And just like with Jonah, our attitudes tend to gravitate towards, well, God saved me because I'm worth it. But he can't save them. That's too much. They're too far gone. It's, it's more comfortable to pretend that God behaves just like we do. So you'll see evidence, or evidence, you'll see arguments throughout history that claim that Rahab was just an innkeeper because that makes us more comfortable. But that just doesn't line up with the language used in the original text. It doesn't line up with um, the descriptions of her later in the New Testament. She wasn't just an innkeeper. And even if we were to ignore the fact that she was a prostitute, even if we were somehow able to get to that point, Rahab is still simply not someone we would expect to be used by Yahweh to help Israel conquer the land that had been promised to them, let alone come to faith in him. Here's what I mean. Rahab, she was a resident of Jericho, a city that was the target of God's judgment and condemnation. It was one of the centers for idol worship in the promised land, so not a great area. She was a Canaanite, meaning that she was part of a corrupt and pagan culture which practiced some real horrible stuff. She had not had the benefit of learning about God and his laws through Moses or through Joshua. She was deceitful, and she was a woman. So the question of why would God use someone like that is completely understandable. Just like Nineveh did not fit Jonah's expectations, Rahab does not fit ours. She does not fit any of the checkboxes that we may have as to somebody that God will use. But let's read what happens next. Between her and the spies, continuing in chapter 2, this time verses 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has, befallen, has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and, how you did, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, while Rahab had lots of issues, like, she, like where she lived, uh, who her people were, what her profession was, lots of issues. 
She also had some good qualities that are worth noting. She was intelligent. She was perceptive. She was decisive. She realized the true purpose for why the spies were there. She dis discerned that the best course of action for her and her family was to align themselves with Israel, even though it meant turning their backs on everyone that they knew. She was able to recognize that Yahweh was the real deal, that he was better than her idols. To come to that conclusion in a vacuum, like there's nobody else around that will agree with her, to come to that conclusion in a vacuum before having even met the spies, that's a big deal. It says a lot about her character. It says a lot about who she was and how she's able to think about these things. Little side note, have, have you ever wondered how Rahab knew about God in the first place? It says that she heard. How did she hear? Like, how did she hear about all the miracles that had been done for Israel? It's not like she was a world traveler. Uh, they didn't have the internet or newspapers. So how did she know? Now, granted, this isn't in Scripture. This is, this is just a theory, so accept it as a theory. Okay? Maybe it was because she was a prostitute. Her clients would talk. Maybe they'd share about what they'd heard from other travelers, that the Israelites, they were on their way, that their God was not to be messed with. Okay? It might have been that Rahab learned so much about, about Israel and God through the stories passed along by her visitors that she was able to come to the conclusion that we read in verse 11. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Maybe. But what's really going to wrinkle your brain is this. Would Rahab have known enough about Israel and Yahweh to make the decision to help the spies and follow God if she had not been a prostitute? Because nobody else in Jericho did. Everyone else who had heard did not turn to God. She did. It's amazing how God is able to create good even when we are trapped by our self-destructive decisions. God is able to do miraculous things in our lives even when we don't expect it. The rest of chapter 2, it fills us in on what happens next. Rahab fully turns her back on her people. She continues to help the two Israelite spies. She protects them. She helps them escape the city. She gives them advice on how to avoid capture. The spies, they make it back to their camp. And they pass along the information to Joshua, <clears throat> including the promise that they made to her, that Rahab and her family, they would be spared when Jericho fell because of what she had done. So if you skip over to chapter 6, verses 22 through 25, it says, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the city, outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and, and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab, she was an outsider in every possible way. She does not fit our expectations, and she never has. But those perceived barriers did not stop God from using her to accomplish his plan because he's God. You with me so far? Uh-huh. Goodness. 
<clears throat> so let's jump forward in history just a little bit. Tiny, tiny bit. After Israel conquered Jericho, and they conquered a couple other cities, they finally settled in the Promised Land. Joshua, well, he got older and, and he died. So various leaders rose up, and, and then there was a famine. And they're settled. It's not easy, though. And at this point, the narrative, it zooms in on one guy who, instead of having faith that God would continue to provide, he decided that he needed to move his family somewhere else, somewhere where there wasn't a famine. And this led to him, his wife, and their two sons leaving Israel to live in a land called Moab. Moab, what you need to know, is, well, it was not always friendly to Israel. Okay? But at this specific time, it sounds like there was some peace, tenuous peace at best. This doesn't mean that it was a great place to live, though. Far from it. The Moabites did not worship God. They did not follow the law of Moses. They were not part of the covenant. This family, they picked up them, the, all they owned, and they moved, and they would have definitely felt like outsiders. Okay? They would be reminded of that every day. This place is not home. This place is not what we're used to. Unfortunately, the husband died quickly after, and this left his widow and his two sons in Moab alone. Both sons, they eventually decided that they wanted to settle down, so they ended up getting married to Moabite women. Fast forward about 10 years, and both sons end up dying. So now, their mother is left alone in a foreign land. The only family that she has left would be her daughters-in-law, who also just lost their husbands. But again, they're not like her in terms of faith, culture, values, like, how do you talk to somebody when, when you're grieving and they're grieving, but you just, you don't have the same foundation to work off of? Like, how do you grieve? Okay, all in all, this is a rough situation. Naomi, the woman who lost her husband and both her sons, she decides that it's time to go back to Israel. It's, it's finally time. She's had enough. She's got to go back. And at first, both of her daughters-in-law decide to go with her. However, Naomi, she urges them to go back, like, go back to your parents' house. And she says, like, I don't have any more sons for you to marry. Are, are you going to wait for me to have more sons and for them to grow up and then marry them? And ugh. it's just, I, I get it, sarcasm, but it's like, mm. So she convinces one, she leaves. But the other, Ruth, she stays. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 18 of the book that's named after her, we read this beautiful, beautiful example of true love. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth loved her mother-in-law so much that she was willing to leave her homeland, leave her family, her people, her religion, her culture, everything. She left it all because of her love for her mother-in-law. This book has a reputation for being an amazing love story, and for good reason. I think often we focus on, on her and, and the guy we'll talk about a little bit later. We don't focus on her and her mother-in-law. Like, this is huge. 
The two women, they, they make their way back to Israel. Ruth, she gets to work in the fields. She's going to gather food for them. Like, they, they have to survive somehow. She catches the eye of a guy named Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi's family. He ends up being really kind to Ruth. And he instructs his servants to, to leave extra wheat for her to gather. Like, in the harvest, just like, hey, drop a little bit. It's like, oh, you're clumsy. Just leave a little bit extra for her to find. When she asks him why, why is he doing this, Boaz reveals that it's because of her love for Naomi. So turn to Ruth chapter 2, 11 through 12. Ruth 2, 11 and 12 says, this is Boaz speaking, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth and Boaz, they end up getting married. Eventually they have a son named Obed who uh, continues the, the family bloodline. Now yes, I am skipping a bunch of their story. <laughs> like just skimming right over it. Um, but that's a study for a different time. And the whole book is four chapters. So you have zero excuse. Like, you can read that in, in an hour, okay? Just like Rahab, here we have an outsider, a non-Israelite widow who is unexpectedly used by God to accomplish something wonderful. Like, it's amazing that she, she left everything. There's one more example of God using a person that we wouldn't expect. I want to pull your example to her to this person. This person's story is bloody, it is gruesome, and it is unexpectedly amazing. It happened during the same basic time period as Ruth, meaning that it's, it's within like a couple hundred year window. Beyond that, we can't be positive. Like, I'm not saying it happened at the exact same time, but the same basic window, okay? During the, the time of the judges, the people of Israel did what was evil, and they turned their back on God. And instead of worshiping him, they chose to worship idols. I remember, Joshua, he, he was older and, and then he died. Like, even after all the amazing things that they had seen God do, Moses was gone and Joshua was gone. They, they had seen God deliver them from slavery, part the Red Sea, guide them in the wilderness, feed them every day with manna. He gave them the law. And yet they still chose to turn their back on him. To, to address this, God raised up judges. Judges who would guide the people back to him. Israel, they were, they were caught in this cycle of sin. So the previous judge, they, they would die. The people, they would go back to their idolatry. They would, they would go back to acting the same or even worse than what they were before. Other nations would come in and conquer them or, or at least make life hard for them. They would constantly attack them. The people would repent. They'd, they'd cry out to God for help. God, help us. Save us. We're, we're sorry. So God would raise up a judge, and this judge would help change their ways and guide them back to righteousness. The people would be good for a while. They'd, they'd be like, yes, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And then the judge would die. And they had the memory of goldfish. And they would just go right back to their idolatry. And over and over and over this happens, and it is just exhausting. 
It's here in the book of Judges that we have guys like Ehud and Shamgar and Gideon and Samson. But among them was also a woman named Deborah. In Judges 4, verse 4, we read that she was a a prophetess who judged and advised Israel. One day, Deborah called for Barak to come to her. This guy had apparently been told by God to gather an army in order to go and defend Israel against another guy named Sisera. Sisera was the general of a Canaanite army, and he was causing a bit of trouble. He, he, was, he was causing some grief. But Barak refused, and he tells, he tells Deborah that he's just not going to go. Like the only way he's going, Deborah, is, is if she goes with him. Okay, I'm, I'm not going, but will you come with us? Maybe, please. So Deborah agrees. She tells him in verse 9 that the glory for the battle will not go to him. God will instead give Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, at first, this sounds like she's talking about herself. After all, that's what we would expect. Deborah was a strong leader. She was an Israelite. Without her there, the battle wouldn't even happen. Of course it's going to be Deborah. Obviously it's going to be Deborah. But that's not who God has in mind, as we will see. Deborah, Barak, and his army go, and they fight Sisera's forces. And God gives them complete and total victory. They wipe everyone out, except for the general. The general, he escapes, but he has no backup. He has no support, and he's on the run. He's on foot, and he's, he's fleeing the battle when he happens upon the, the tent of a woman named Jael, who is a Kenite, not an Israelite, a Kenite. Sisera was relieved. This lady wasn't like the people that he was fighting. Okay? He's not at war with her people. This would be the perfect place to hide out. Let's read what happens next. Judges chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't, don't be afraid. So he turned aside to to her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. Stand at the opening of a tent, and, and if any man comes and asks, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, obviously. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. We're not talking like a tiny, tiny little pin. We're talking like a large iron tent peg driven through the skull and the brain into the ground. She pinned him to the ground. That is what God used. Okay? As with Rahab and Ruth, Jael is an outsider. One who no one would expect to serve any sort of role in God's story. And as we've seen time and time again, Yahweh, well, he's just not limited by our expectations. He's going to use who he wants to use, and he wanted to use Jael. What does 
all of this have to do with our core theme? We're talking about God's heart for the world, right? Yes? Okay, just making sure I hadn't lost you that, okay? God's heart for the world. We're not talking about Old Testament heroes, right? <sighs> sort of. In youth group, we have a term that I use that it was actually coined by an old professor of mine. It's a shared truth. A shared truth is, is something of a specific passage of Scripture that was true back when it was written. It was true at the time of Jesus. It was true in the Middle Ages. It's true now. It's true here in America. It's true in Europe. It's true in Africa. It's true everywhere. A shared truth. Okay? A shared truth is an underlying foundation that does not change regardless of where you come from, who your family is, or what mistakes you have made. It is just true. I believe that a shared truth that could be gleaned from these Old Testament heroes is that God loves the whole world. He desires everyone to be made right with him. He loves these unexpected pillars of the Old Testament so much even though they didn't fit the expected definition of what was a worthwhile individual. Even though they didn't fit that, he brought them into his story. God's word, all of it, even the Old Testament, is useful for training us up in righteousness. Just as Paul told Timothy, when we study the Old Testament, we have an opportunity to gain insight and understanding into God's character. The stories of Rahab and Ruth and Jael, they, they reveal a creator who is actively seeking you and me. And yes, even those people who we don't expect. After all, it, it was the sick who Jesus came to save. That's what he said. So how then can we claim to love our Lord if we don't love those whom he loves? Okay? So I'll say it again for those in the back. If your study of theology results in loving God but not all people, you might be loving just the idea of God. It's not hard to put this together. It is backed up by Scripture. Over and over we see this. But why do we resist? Why do we go through the motions of our faith without really living it out? Why do we just do the bare basic, the bare minimum? Here's the sad fact. We too often... We put God in a box. And then we take that box and we put it on a shelf. We pride ourselves on how we have figured out this whole faith thing. After all, God is just like us, right? Like he would only use or do what makes sense to us, right? From within this little box, God is only going to use the good people, the morally upright people, the church people, the people from the right families, the people who agree with us on whatever our current political and cultural values are. God will only use those people. What a cute little God in his cute little box. Folks, if that's the God you serve, my God's bigger than your God. Okay? Yahweh does not fit in a box. He is not limited by our expectations or our opinions on who is worthwhile. He is the creator, and he is in love with his creation. All of it, even the parts which are currently in rebellion, he loves them. He is actively working to draw us back to him through whatever means he desires, not what we desire. He used Rahab. He used Ruth. He used Jael. 
all because he has a heart for the world, because he is God. As if their stories weren't amazing enough already. Let's, let's take an even deeper look at how God unexpectedly used Rahab and Ruth, this time in his plan to save the world. To see what I mean, we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. So out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Now, genealogies, they may not interest you, but that's okay. You have the freedom to make poor decisions in your life. (laughs) Genealogies are awesome, okay? You may not understand why they're used in Scripture in the first place, so the short answer would be that in the case of Matthew, the author's primary goal in listing these important names in Jesus' family is to demonstrate that Jesus' heritage fits with what was foretold by the prophets, they said many times that the Messiah was going to come from the line of King David, who he himself was descended from Abraham. So by listing this genealogy, Matthew is trying to prove to his, his Hebrew audience that it is in fact possible for Jesus to be the promised Messiah. He has the pedigree. He has the family. So check out chapter 1. We're just going to read the first six, chap- uh, six chapters. We're going to be here all day. No. 1 verses 1 through 6. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, boom, Jesus, David, Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of, father of Amadab, and Amadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. The f- Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now hold up. We, we know that the Messiah was descended from King David. Like I said, it's foretold over and over and over by the prophets, and Matthew goes on to prove that in the verses after what we just read. But in the genealogy leading up to King David, the line that starts with Abraham, the line that the Messiah has to come from, Both Rahab and Ruth are listed. The Canaanite prostitute, the Moabite widow, these outsiders are included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. If you're not amazed yet, (laughs) you're not paying attention. Why are they here? They do not fit our expectations. They couldn't trace their ancestry back to one of the 12 tribes of Jacob. They weren't born into the family of Abraham. They were foreigners who were not originally part of God's covenant people. One was a former prostitute who simply wanted to avoid death in war. The other was a new convert to Judaism who only originally did so because of her love for her mother-in-law. Why are they part of God's plan for redemption for the entire world? Why are they even listed in the first place? Women are not usually included in genealogies, but here they are in Scripture. Why are they so important? Rahab and Ruth are here for the same reason that God chose to not bring judgment on Nineveh. They are here as a testimony to his character of our Lord God. Again, They are here as a testimony to the character of our God. 
our God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. They are here to prove that. There was no reason whatsoever that would have required God to use the actions of a foreign female prostitute to aid Israel in figuring out how to conquer Jericho. They literally marched around the city 13 times over the course of a week, blew some horns, and the walls, which were large enough for people to live in, came crashing down. But he chose to use Rahab anyway. He didn't have to do that. There was no hint that Rahab gave the spies that helped them knock the walls down. She didn't be like, all right, the certain frequency, and if you march in time at this... No. There was no reason... God didn't have to do that. There was no reason whatsoever that would have required God to use the compassion of a foreign widow to help bring Naomi back to her homeland. He could have gotten Naomi's attention and drawn her out of Moab any number of ways. But he chose to use Ruth. He didn't have to do that. There is no reason whatsoever that would have required God to use the ferocity of a foreign nomadic woman to end the life of, of a troublesome general. There was a whole army coming after him. Okay? They were ready and willing to take him out, but God chose to use Jael anyway. He didn't have to do that. God continually does the unexpected because he doesn't fit in a cute little box that is limited by our understanding. He sees beyond the walls of our expectations and extends love and compassion to the outsiders. He allows them to play impactful roles in his story because he has a heart for the world. Do you get it yet? God loves people. I know you know this. Okay, you've most likely heard about these women many, many times before. Okay, this isn't like some secret area of the Bible where the pages are all sticking together and, and you've never heard of them. No, you've heard of them, okay? But it's not enough for you to just know their stories. It's not enough for you to just be super familiar with a text. Whether that familiarity you have is because you grew up in the church and you went to Awanas and Sunday school and youth group, or whether it's because now as an adult you are just constantly reading God's Word for yourself— that familiarity with the word must be combined with understanding and comprehension. It has to have understanding and comprehension. It doesn't matter if you can just quote scripture, okay? There are tons of people out there who do not believe in Jesus Christ who can quote scripture. You gotta have some understanding and comprehension. It's not enough to read the words on the page unless you are also catching a glimpse of our God's deep and endless love. If there is one thing, just one thing I want you to take away from our time together this morning, it's this. God's heart for the world exceeds what we are comfortable with. We are no better than Rahab, Ruth, or Jael. We are no more worthy of God's love than our neighbors, or even those that we wish we never had to talk to because we disagree with them on absolutely everything under the sun. We are not more worthy than them. I think Paul said it best in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 17b through 19 says, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. The sooner that we come to terms with the fact that God does not fit in whatever little box of understanding that we've constructed for him, that we've crafted for him, the sooner that we come to terms with the fact that we can't contain him, the sooner we can get to work in sharing the gospel, making disciples, just like Jesus told us to do. I urge you, I plead with you, don't miss out just because you can't set aside your expectations. Let's pray. Father God, we, we are continually humbled by your word, humbled by your majesty, your goodness. God, we are continually trapped by our expectations, and, and we don't expect you to be who you are. I pray that you will chase after us, that you won't give up on us, that you will help us to see just how great and mighty you are, how much love you have for your creation. We thank you for this time together that we can be encouraged and strengthened and challenged as we continue through our day and our week. God, I pray that you will help this to remain at the forefront of our minds, that we won't be able to push aside this truth that you love your creation, that you love this world. In your son's holy name I pray, amen.